One of the things that uh, any parent with primary age kid dreads are the days when the kids have to go to school and they have to prepare some sort of costume. So Easter hat parade or the dreaded book week. Now, some of you non-parents, especially if you're younger, you probably remember your experiences on things like book week. Let me tell you, no matter how much you enjoyed it, your parents hated it with a passion, every single one of them. Now, book week, what, what do kids usually dress up in? Of course, nowadays, it's going to be the superheroes, right? Marvel and maybe DC. Uh, my kids have over the years dressed up from, uh, with books from Harry Potter characters and Hunger Game characters. Now, some kids get very creative as to what actually counts as books and they dress up. So um, I've had some of my kids dress up as characters from Minecraft. I don't know. Um, one of my uh, kids' friends actually dressed up as Roger Federer. I mean... I don't even know if that counts as a book week character. Anyway, now what you will notice, of course, is that when it comes to things like book week or Halloween or anything like that, they're always going to dress up as what? The main characters, right? They're going to dress up as the heroes because we identify with heroes from, from a young age. And we naturally do that, don't we? Uh, when we read the Bible, especially when we read old, the Old Testament, that we identify with the heroes of the biblical stories. So for example, in David and Goliath, we will take the position of, of the young shepherd boy, David, as he faces off against the massive giant Goliath, right? And then in today's passage, we just read, who do we identify with? Well, we're naturally gonna identify with the hero Joshua who told the son to stand still for a day and God actually listened. Now, this might be controversial, but I wanna suggest that to do this would be a mistake. That our entry point into the story, and actually most biblical stories, shouldn't be the hero. That shouldn't be the one we identify with. In fact, our entry point shouldn't be in this uh, passage we read, shouldn't be the rescuer, Joshua. We're actually supposed to identify with the people needing to be rescued. You got that? We're supposed to be identifying with the Gibeonites. That's who we are in this story. Those ones about to be pummeled by an alliance of five mighty kings. Now, that's pretty against our natural instinct, isn't it? Like book week. I mean, imagine kids dressing up instead of a Marvel superhero, dressing up as a poor New Yorker about to be killed in the Marvel Avengers movie um, and needing to be saved. Or, or instead of dressing up as Harry Potter or Hermione, they're going to dress up as a muggle, right? That just doesn't happen, does it? But that's really important. Now, you might be asking, why is that important when it comes to the Bible? I want to suggest that where you place yourself in this story and in every biblical story will greatly affect the outcome of your faith. It actually will. See, whether your Christian life will thrive or wither in the journey, whether your view of God will be crippled or expanded, whether you will embrace the gospel of grace or some form of salvation by works, all of that is affected by how we read ourselves into these biblical stories. It's that important. Well, I hope you're intrigued. Let's take a journey through Joshua 10. Let me pray. Father, help us as we look at this part of the Bible where we're naturally wanting to read ourselves into the hero story. Help us to see just how being the ones needing rescue, like the Gibeonites, and seeing ourselves there will actually shape our faith. We pray that you will speak loudly to us through this amazing story that we've read today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first point, um, threat level critical. Let's uh, start reading from chapter 10, verse 1 again. Now, Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, 
and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. Um, it's been a while, right, since we've done the book of Joshua. But actually, those verses sort of bring us to speed. If you want a bit of a recap, Joshua is the book that talks about how God is finally fulfilling his great promises to his chosen people, Israel. So in Exodus, uh, Numbers, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, those books before Joshua, the people of God are rescued from Egypt, from slavery. Um, They've just wandered for 40 years in the desert. And now, finally, they're about to enter the promised land. Now, the land was occupied by, well, these wicked Canaanite nations. And Joshua and the people of God, well, if they obeyed God fully, followed God and carried out God's commands, they would be the instrument of God's judgment on these really, really wicked nations. And in so doing, they would also gain their promised inheritance. Now, so far, we've come to in the book of Joshua, two cities have been conquered, um, Jericho and Ai. You might remember them. If you don't, uh, maybe go back and listen to some of those sermons earlier on in May and June. Now, the last chapter that we ended off our series last time One of the Canaanite cities, the city of Gibeon, you see it there, they tricked Joshua and tricked Israel into making a treaty with them. They should have been destroyed along with the other Canaanite nations, but they they, they did a ruse. They, they, They tricked them. Now, of course, Joshua and the people didn't like to be tricked, but they honored the treaty, right? Because it was a promise. They honored it and spared them. But this, you see, sets off the chain of events, the threat here in chapter 10. Now, another map, you see there, Gideon, uh, Gibeon, not Gideon, Gibeon was actually an important gateway city that held a pretty strategic position. It, it, was, it was the point of access to the city towards the south, right? In verse 2, we also read that it's a large city with a bunch of good fighting men. Now, this city would have been great in defense against Israel coming down and sweeping south, but they had defected. And so the cities towards its south, well, they've now become very, very vulnerable, So the king of Jerusalem creates an alliance with four other kings, four other city-states for a preemptive strike. They would, right, if they take Gibeon back, they could close the gates on the Israelite advance. All right, this is all military strategy stuff. Some of you love this stuff. Some of you don't care. All right, but the point is this. For Gibeon, right, the city of Gibeon, this was, a, this was a scary, critical situation, right? They were about to be, literally be wiped out. I mean, strong and fortified as they were, they could not stand a chance against the power of five cities, yeah? Five city-states, five kings. For them, I think facing that tidal wave of destruction would have been a little bit like Afghanistan, the tragedy of Afghanistan in recent months. You probably know about it. I mean, those Afghan translators and those who've helped the allies and the Western forces against the Taliban for the last 20 years, right? This year, they, they watched the country overrun because the ally, the Western allies all withdrew and all of a sudden they see their whole country being, being taken back by the Taliban and knowing that as the Taliban advanced and went city after city after city that they would be the first ones to be arrested and possibly executed. That's probably what Gibeon felt like. And remember what I said at the beginning, Our entry point into this story is Gibeon. Gibeon is where we're to see ourselves. We are actually very much like these foreigners. We've taken refuge in Israel's God. We're foreigners. But the threat that we face is so much greater than Gibeon. Jesus says in Matthew 25 verse 41, he actually says that hell 
is prepared for the devil and the devil's angels or demons. And what does this mean? This means that hell isn't first and foremost a punishment for people. Hell is actually first and foremost a punishment for Satan and his minions. So you got to ask the question, why do people go to hell? Well, because Satan and his minions, the forces of evil and darkness, they want to bring us with them. Right? You see what's actually arrayed against us. Right? Satan will do everything he can to drag us to hell with him. How will he do that? Through temptation, through discouragement, uh, through addictions, through pain, through distraction. He is doing everything he can to fight God and to destroy God's people. And you know, the greatest power Satan has to use against us is actually what's inside of us and what's really essentially our fault. The greatest power he's got against us is our own sin and guilt and shame that stand as a record of wrongs against us. You see, more powerful than direct demonic attack is the undealt with sin and guilt and shame that we might carry. That's what will drag us to eternal punishment in hell with Satan and his demons, right? I want you to see that we face a greater danger than Gibeon did, right? All the people of the world, all of us in our natural state are in this, that we face the onslaught of a greater force than these five kings of Canaan. Gibeon's desperate situation is a little picture of ours. But, of course, Joshua chapter 10 is actually good news because it ends with amazing victory for Israel and salvation for these Gibeonites, right? It all starts with, of course, a cry for help. So let's have a look again from verse 6. Look what it says there. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants, or literally, do not let us go from your hand, right? Do not let us go from your hand. It's a lovely image, isn't it? Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. Now, you remember that Gibeon um, in verse 2 was actually a large fortified city with a strong fighting force. And yet, notice they didn't try to take matters into their own hands, did they? They came on their knees begging for help. And you notice what they say to Joshua. They, they don't try to manipulate Joshua. right? They didn't say... Save us because we deserve it. Save us because we're a good strategic city, right? It's you in your interest to save us. Save us because we have a good army of fighting men. If you save us, we can fight. For you. No, no. The basis for their appeal, their cry for help, was simply because Joshua had made a promise to them to shelter them and to rescue them. That's it. That was the basis. And on that basis, Joshua and his army are mobilized. It's enough. You've got to remember, though, the threat was not against Joshua and his army at this point. It wasn't against Israel, but this foreign Canaanite nation. Like it would have been so easy for the Israelites, for Joshua, just to, like the US in Afghanistan, like the allies in Afghanistan, just to think enough is enough, we'll retreat. You're on your own now, right? But you see, Joshua made a promise and he would honor that. And because God is all about honoring promises, the Lord himself assures Joshua that he would now bring victory to this endeavor. So verse eight, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. Now those words 
of God to Joshua here in verse 8. They echo the earliest words of God to Joshua. Back in chapter 1, I don't know if you remember, where God essentially says, don't be afraid, be strong and courageous. You remember that? Because I, the Lord, am with you. No one will be able to stand against you. Right? Back in chapter 1. And the same hand, remember the Gibeon's knight said, don't let us go from your hand. Well, that's the same hand that the Lord says now in verse 8, he will strengthen in order to save them. This is a powerful promise. You see, the promise, the power of Joshua's promise, which is why he comes to save the Gibeonites, is actually backed with the power of God's promise. And this poor foreign nation about to be wiped out, they now get to benefit from God's powerful promise, which was actually initially only for Joshua and Israel back in chapter one. Well, now they get the flow on effects and they benefit from God's promise to Israel. Right? They come with nothing. They beg for mercy, but that was exactly what they needed to do. And guess what? That's exactly what we need to do as well. Yeah. You see, the gospel, the good news is this. While we were still sinners, says Romans chapter 5. While we were dead in our transgressions, says Ephesians chapter 2. While we had nothing to offer God. While we were in darkness, the passage we looked at last week in 1 Peter 2. While we were trapped in sin and guilt and shame, God took the initiative and he reached down and he came to rescue us. You see, salvation is not something that we or contribute a little towards, like we do a little bit of good works, a little bit of religion, and then God will make up the rest. It does not work like that. Salvation is God and God alone. Or in terms that you might be familiar with, what we Protestants believe what? Salvation is by grace alone. Trusting in the promises of God alone, right? It's the alone word that's the most important word. It's all God. We add nothing to it. And so faced with the onslaught of Satan and hell, we can only come on our knees with nothing but a cry for help. Lord, have mercy. Don't let us go. Remember your promise, O God. The cry of the Gibeonites is the same cry and the only cry that we have. But because of God's powerful promise through Jesus, it's enough. I wonder if you're listening here and, and, and you haven't taken refuge in the power of God's promise through Jesus. You're not yet a follower of Jesus. Your sins are not yet forgiven and you're not sure that this has happened to you. If this is you, can I urge you today, take hold of the promise. It's for you. And if you want to find out more, come along to Alpha. Not too late to come along on Tuesday nights. All right, we're actually going to look at this very thing. Who is Jesus? Why does he matter? But if you're already a follower of Jesus, it could be that you are facing some crippling onslaught in your life or your faith. And by the way, you know, Satan works in our world particularly in all sorts of ways and mostly behind the scenes. And so these onslaughts, these pains, this suffering, these things that are crippling you, they are spiritual. They are satanic. But I want you to know this. If God can do this for you in your greatest need, that he can actually save you from Hell, imagine what he can do for you in your current situation as black and as dark and as bleak as it might seem at the moment. Cry out to God, dear Christian. Cry out to God. He hears the cry of the desperate. He will come to your aid. 
Well, the rest of the chapter is a pretty exciting unfolding of God enacting that powerful salvation through Joshua, right? So let's have a look at verse 9. Now I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, another good translation. I'll tell you why in a moment, but have a look with me on the screen. So Joshua caught them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgal. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. He defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them through the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Azekar and Mekedah. As they fled before Israel, the Lord threw large hailstones on them from the sky along the descent of Beth Horon all the way to Azekar and they died. More of them died from the hail than the Israelites killed with the sword. Um, the reason why we're looking at this translation is I think it captures the original a little bit better than our NIVs. Because you notice there, who is the subject? Who is the he in all the verbs in verse 10? Who threw them into confusion, defeated them, chased them, struck them down? Well, in the CSB, this translation, right? It's actually the Lord, right? And in the original, that's what it is like. It's just he. It's probably talking about God, that God threw them into confusion. God was the one who defeated them, chased them, struck them down. And then God threw these large hailstones on them, right? The Lord, not Joshua. I mean, obviously through Joshua, but the, you know, the passage wants us to see that God was the one who did it all. And especially, of course, verse 11, that actually he killed more people with, with, with the hailstones than Joshua did with the sword. Right? It's pretty clear, isn't it? The Lord was the one who did it all. But it doesn't mean that Joshua didn't play a key part, of course, because this is also what the passage brings out. In fact, Joshua's own name is the solution the Gibeonites have begged for. They cried, save us. Joshua's name means the Lord saves. And then of course, in verses 12 to 14, the exciting bit, right? This amazing nature miracle comes through the word of Joshua, right? Verse uh, 12, on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Joshua, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, sun, stand still over Gibeon and you moon over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. Now, I know what you're asking because it's my same questions I have. What actually happened? How literal is this? I mean, did the earth actually stop rotating or maybe slow down its rotation? Because, you know, right, the sun doesn't actually, yeah, you know. <laughs> or was it actually some sort of eclipse? Because in the original Hebrew, it's simply the sun and moon stopped, right? To stop could mean stop rotating or stop moving, but it also could mean stop shining. This could be a solar eclipse. Or maybe it's a solar eclipse uh, in some sort of way because of this massive hailstorm. Maybe it blanketed the sky and you couldn't see the sun or the moon. And that's what they meant. We don't know exactly. We really don't. But whatever happened, it was it's supposed to be and was an astounding once in history sort of nature miracle. And of course, what's so important about it is in verse 14. See it there? There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Yeah, you got that? God listened to a human, a man. And the word of this puny human being stopped the sun and the moon. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? But... Even that is just a preview of something greater. You see, when it comes to our rescue, our salvation, it was also achieved, wasn't it, by God listening to the voice of a man. In fact, another man called Joshua, which in Greek is the name Jesus, of course. 
God listened to a man and nature bent to his voice. I mean, think of the time Jesus on the boat with his disciples in a deadly storm and he stilled it with a word. And then, of course, the greatest victory and the greatest rescue also came on a day when the sun stopped. It stopped in the middle of the day. I mean, there is Jesus hung on the cross, crucified. What happened? We read in the accounts, the sun actually stopped shining. There was a solar eclipse. And God again listened to a man. God listened when Jesus, the, the greater Joshua, when he uttered on the cross those words, Father, forgive them. And because Jesus died in our place on the cross, when he uttered those words, Father, forgive them. Our debt was cancelled and Satan was crushed. You see it in Colossians chapter 2. Look at these amazing verses. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. Remember, that's the greatest threat that Satan has against you. That's what's going to drag us to hell, right? Our legal indebtedness, our sins. What does he do? He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities. This is talking about satanic powers and, and, and evil authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It couldn't be clearer than that, right? So my final point, why does it matter? Why does it matter that we identify not with the hero, the savior, Joshua, but as Gibeon who needed saving? It's because only then do we see ourselves rightly. We are not the heroes. We're the desperate ones needing a hero, yeah? Now, I know this is gospel 101, right? Basic stuff. But I want to suggest that so many of the problems we face in our lives, especially as followers of Jesus, or even if we're not followers of Jesus, Come because we forget to let this incredible truth, this incredible salvation, this incredible gospel 101 sink really deep. See, we we move on from this so easily, right? We move on from the reality of our sin and how terrible hell would be. We move on from the gratitude and the wonder and the worship of the cross of Jesus where our salvation was initiated and accomplished. We move on from... Grace alone, by trusting in God's promise through Jesus alone, and we add things to it. We move on. Let me tell you about Kevin. Kevin is a Christian and has been for many years. He serves at church. He reads his Bible. He prays most days. He gives money to support his church and missions. He tries to share his faith. He's a committed follower of Jesus. But if you really ask Kevin how he is, he'd say that he's, well, restless. Restless. He's not living in the joy and peace he used to have when he first came to Christ. It's been so long since the Bible came alive for him. Prayer fluctuates between token thanks, a few sorries, and last-minute requests. Church and sermons, well, they mostly bore him. And in spite of the fact he's not going that well, if he's honest with himself, he spends a lot of time looking around him, especially when he's on social media, and he's filled with judgmental thoughts. He's very critical against other Christians, what they do, what they say, who they are. Mostly other Christians that he sees just irk him. 
and he's restless. And COVID and lockdown has brought it out even more. Things at work have been difficult. He's not happy there. His marriage and family life has suffered due to lockdown because a lot of his harsh, judgmental and critical side is actually directed at his wife and kids. They don't say it, but he knows he's increasingly difficult to live with. And deep, deep inside, if Kevin is really honest, he feels hard done by by God. I mean, after all he's done for the Lord, why aren't things going well for him? This isn't how he thought life would be. Doesn't God at least owe him a little bit of happiness? Now, Kevin is hypothetical, but Kevin might be you. Now, what do you think Kevin needs? And especially if you see Kevin mirror any part of your journey, your spiritual life, what do you actually need? Let me suggest it's this. Kevin needs nothing more and nothing less than Gospel 101 to captivate him all over again. See, Kevin and and you and me, we need to see ourselves rightly in this rescue story in Joshua as it points to the greatest rescue story of all in Jesus. We need to see that we were desperate and hopeless like the Gibeonites when God found us, that we were facing the terrors of hell and eternal condemnation and our own guilt and shame weighing us down. But then God wonderfully reached down to rescue us through his only son, Jesus, who would willingly die for us and forgive us and love us. See, when you see that salvation is not something you can achieve, but it's something completely achieved for you like we see in Joshua 10. And you allow it to go deep. I mean, real deep. It changes everything, doesn't it? Right? The cross brings you to your knees in wonder and worship. And you soften towards other people. It kills harshness and judgmentalism. And you stop thinking that God somehow owes you because you came with nothing and he gave you everything. And you feel restful and at peace, even in times of turmoil, because you're able to surrender everything to the God who loves you so much. I wonder if this is what you need right now. I wonder if this, to this day, this sermon, this word is particularly for you. Probably yes, right? And in case you're also wondering, this kind of stuff Rather than make you passive, you know, God does everything, I don't have to do anything. No, no. Rather than make you passive, this will actually energize you to live boldly and powerfully for God. But that, my friends, is for next week as we continue in chapter 10 of Joshua. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts to bring us back to the cross, to the basics so that we might see ourselves as we do the Gibeonites needing of rescue. When we had nothing going for us, you gave us everything. And help us to see your rescue through Jesus. And help us to be captivated again by this with wonder and gratitude and worship in Jesus' name. Amen.